The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. What makes the outbreak different is the fact that we're seeing transmission from person to person, and there's no involvement of people that had been to an endemic area, no involvement of animals. That makes it unique. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from the May issue of Annals of Internal Medicine titled A Novel International Monkeypox Outbreak. Joining us on the podcast is the first author, Amish Aldalja, who's a senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. He focuses on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, and the intersection of infectious disease and national security. He's board certified in infectious disease, critical care, emergency medicine, internal medicine, and actively practices in the Pittsburgh area. We believe you will learn a lot about monkeypox and the current increase in cases. Amish, thanks for joining us on short notice. Your article came out today, uh, May 23rd, and some things will have changed uh, by the time you listen to this podcast. But this is what we know as of the day that the article came out. I think it's best to start out with what is the classic presentation of monkeypox? That's what we all want to know as physicians. So the classic presentation would be a fever with a very characteristic rash with all the lesions of the same age, very different than, for example, with chickenpox, where the, the lesions might be of different age. So everything looks homogenous. They also have lymph node swelling, which distinguishes it from smallpox. And they'll have those kind of symptoms before the rash that are very familiar at familiarly described as flu-like symptoms. So malaise, muscle aches and pains, and, and then that rash starts. That's the classic presentation. And then in the social history, you'll see that they had maybe traveled to Nigeria or to Africa, or maybe they work with a certain animal that might've had the exposure. That's the classical type of monkeypox that uh, would be on a board exam, for example. What makes this outbreak different from what we've seen in the past? What makes the outbreak different is the fact that we're seeing transmission from person to person, and there's no involvement of people that had been to an endemic area, no involvement of animals. That makes it unique, that it's spreading outside of an endemic area without a clear link to an endemic area or without a clear link to an animal. And that's why there has been some alarm bells that have been rung. Let's go back to uh, monkeypox itself. As you write, it's a member of the orthopox virus family and related to smallpox. How does that help us in understanding this? Well, it, has, it shares a lot of characteristics with smallpox, not all, but some of the same principles that we use to eradicate smallpox from this planet can be used to contain monkeypox outbreaks. And that's what's happened with prior monkeypox outbreaks. So because it's like smallpox, some of the characteristics are the rash, the fever, all of that's similar. It has a lower mortality rate, but it's not contagious during its incubation period, just like smallpox is not. 
the smallpox vaccine works very well as a preventative and as post-exposure prophylaxis. Smallpox antivirals work against it. And the same principle of how you contain smallpox, which is called surveillance containment or ring vaccination, that's how monkeypox outbreaks are extinguished, that you don't vaccinate everybody. You vaccinate the contacts of cases sort of forming a ring around them to block transmission. So all of that gives us a lot of tools, a lot of knowledge that bear on monkeypox outbreaks. And the prior outbreak that happened in the U.S. in 2003, that's exactly how it was stopped, by using the smallpox vaccine to vaccinate contacts and stop transmission outward. What do we think are the risk factors for infection in this outbreak? So this outbreak seems very unique because it's not travel to Nigeria or the DRC. It's not handling a Gambian rat or a prairie dog that's been infected by a Gambian rat. It's actual sexual contact. So what's happened is it seems that this virus has found its way into a sexual network of men who have sex with men and use certain events and, um, that have occurred, such as raves and saunas and places like that, to basically e exploit that network and not necessarily transmit sexually, but use that close contact that happens during sexual encounters to find one way to get from one person to another person. And because these events seem to have been dispersed and in different parts of the world and involve people from different parts of the world, it's allowed the virus to seed multiple countries at the same time. Um, and, and that's what seems to be the risk factor now. So this is men who have sex with men, uh, often presenting to sexually transmitted infection clinics, often some of them getting misdiagnosed. We heard about cases in Montreal getting misdiagnosed as chancroid. That's what's really facilitating the spread. And that seems to be the risk factor for this particular outbreak. Is there any evidence of heterosexual transmission? Not to my knowledge, but there are obviously going to be people that were not involved in sexual contact with a case patient that could get it. Close contact, rubbing of skin, shaking hands, that could also do it. Heterosexual contact truly could do it. But it seems that what's happened is almost random, that it's found itself into a network where there is a lot of men who have sex with men, and that's how it's that's driving spread. But there's no reason that, you know, if during intimate contact, a man gives it to a man, a man can give it to a woman, a woman can give it to a man. It's just that's not what's happening so far in this in this outbreak. I, I think there is a ch chance of that. And we've known in the past that people who have gotten smallpox vaccination, the live version of that, that can shed. And there's been sexual transmission of the vaccine virus of smallpox within the U.S. military um, several years ago. So we know that pox viruses can can spread that way with close contact. And it doesn't necessarily matter what the sexual orientation is. It's more about that close contact and the happenstance of what's happened in this outbreak. I read somewhere that there is some large droplet spread. Is that something that we should keep in the back of our minds? The virus can spread through, through large respiratory droplets. So they'll kind of fall to the ground within three feet or, or six feet. And that could happen during sexual encounters as well because people are very close together. And when we take care of these patients in a hospital setting, we often put them in airborne, we put them in airborne isolation or droplet isolation because of that transmissibility. I suspect a lot of the, the transmission during this outbreak is occurring from direct contact with each other because we're hearing about lesions in, in the genital area, which isn't really where you would expect respiratory droplets to fall. I assume that's what has made it harder to diagnose initially until people become more aware of it. So what are the treatment possibilities? You mentioned that some of the treatments for smallpox work. Where do we stand in May of 2022 in terms of uh, our treatment toolbox? There are several antivirals that are approved or have activity against smallpox, and they would be expected to work against monkeypox. Some of them have done 
clinical trials in animals. So they have data behind them, but we don't really have a concept of operations for how we'd use them. I suspect they would be used in immunocompromised people, people with high risk conditions, people with severe disease. Many of the cases are sort of getting better on their own. So there's not necessarily a role for them. And because monkeypox has a lower morbidity mortality rate than smallpox, there may not be the same push to use them. Smallpox is a much more deadly disease. That's what these antivirals were designed for. So I think what I read is most people have mild cases. There are some serious cases. Are you aware of any clues about how we should be watching the patients and what are the, the red flags or the, the signs of worry? So some of them have to do with you know central nervous system infection. So you have to go back to the 2003 outbreak and there were maybe about three or four severe cases some causing central nervous system infection. One case actually had such big lymphadenopathy that it caused airway compromise. So if people have lymph nodes that are swollen in their neck that are getting very big, that's something to think about. Obviously, secondary bacterial infections of the, of the monkeypox lesions, of the skin lesions, is something to worry about. But I think it's kind of the general things, looking for sepsis, looking for impaired breathing, looking for mental status changes. That would make sense, making sure that those patients are hydrated, especially if they have high fevers. If I remember right, uh, reading about smallpox, there was a lot of scarring after you recovered from smallpox. Is, is this a rash that goes away without scarring, or do these people have similar scarring to smallpox? I think some of them can scar, some of them don't. It all depends on the individual case. Okay. But it doesn't seem to be as, you know, the, the rash is indistinguishable from that of smallpox, but we don't necessarily see the same morbidity and mortality from smallpox. So I'm of the age where uh, I got my smallpox vaccine when I was when I was a kid, as are many of my friends in my age group. Are we protected? When you look at the epidemiology of who gets monkeypox, even in places like Africa, it is often younger people, people that weren't vaccinated as part of the smallpox when smallpox was a routine vaccination. So there likely is some protection that you get. It may have waned. And certainly if you were exposed again, they would revaccinate you. But there probably is some level. And when you look at how monkeypox emerged, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the smallpox routine vaccination ceased, and that gave monkeypox kind of a foothold or a naive immune population to be able to infect. So I do think that there probably is some residual immunity in people who were vaccinated. And then, you know, obviously the people in the military that get vaccinated regularly for smallpox, they probably have robust immunity. So one of the things that you mentioned a few minutes ago, as well as in the article, is once we have an index case, then we can get all of their close contacts and vaccinate those people. Even if they were exposed, the vaccination should stop them from getting full-blown monkeypox. Do we have easy access to smallpox vaccine? I haven't seen anybody with a, with a smallpox scar on their arm in many years. We do have easy access because after the September 11 attacks and after the anthrax attacks in 2001, the federal government really invested a lot in making sure that there was enough smallpox vaccine to vaccinate the entire country in the event of a bioterrorist attack. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that they also invested in second generation vaccines, ones that are less reactogenic. So we've got at least two types of vaccines that are stockpiled. But the thing is exactly as you said, you don't have to vaccinate everybody. You just have to vaccinate the contacts of the index cases that you see. There, there clearly is enough vaccine to, to be able to do that. There's enough vaccine to vaccinate everybody. So I don't think that there's going to be an issue. It's maybe about logistics and deploying and finding the contacts that are going to be important, deciding whether to use first-generation vaccines or second-generation vaccines. Those are the issues. And back in 2003, they did deploy the vaccine to vaccinate people that were exposed to those animals and to the contacts of the, the people that were caught were exposed to those animals. So they were able to do that, and they have done it before. 
So this is just a question of figuring out who the contacts are and getting the vaccine to them. So this is really classic public health contact tracing. Right. And this is where contact tracing really is beneficial because the incubation period is 12 days. So they have some time to get to those people. And then they have an actual intervention that they can do within the incubation period. And because monkeypox is not contagious during the incubation period, it makes it so much easier to contain than something like flu or something like SARS-CoV-2, where there's contagiousness in the incubation period. And that's a major point. When you're looking at an emerging infectious disease outbreak, if something is contagious during its incubation period, it becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible, to contain. But when something is not, then you have room, you have, you have space, you can actually do things. Uh, so let's say I'm a primary care physician and a patient comes into my office and has this new rash, has had flu-like symptoms, and I suspect mon monkeypox. Let's walk through all the things that uh, I should do, or if I'm in an emergency department and I see that. The first thing you should do is put the patient into negative pressure isolation. Put them into an airborne isolation room if you have one. Hopefully you have one in your doctor's office. You've got some way you can sort of have a makeshift one in your doctor's office. And then what you need to do is call your local or state health, health department, depending on where you are, and they'll walk you through what to do. Usually they're going to take you know, samples of the lesions and send those for PCR at a state or a local uh, health department laboratory. At the same time, do the regular stuff, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, make sure the patient is stable, make sure that they, they're, they're okay, that they're not short of breath, that the lymph nodes aren't super big, that they're not dehydrated. So do the routine stuff. But the, big, the, the key things are, that are different than everyday practice are isolate the patient and, and then get in touch with your health department to get the diagnostics rolling. And then full precaution, let's say they're admitted to my hospital service, full precautions, <laughs> drop the precautions, gloves, et cetera. Yeah, right now, most places are probably going to do full airborne. In the past, they'd said, do airborne until you rule out smallpox and then go to droplet. I think right now, most people are just going to do airborne. And certainly because of COVID-19 and because all these hospitals are key to doing airborne anyway, most of these patients are going to be recommended to be put in airborne for the whole, whole duration. And then... If I see a patient, I should get this, that smallpox vaccine because I'm a contact. It depends upon what your contact might be. Yeah. Uh, it depends on how much skin-to-skin -skin contact. So you should be using universal precautions in those situations, and that should hopefully obviate the need. And right now, because of COVID-19, most healthcare providers are wearing masks when they're going in to see patients. So it's not necessarily that every doctor or provider right. is going to be in contact. And just to wrap this up, and then boy, this has been great information. The epidemiology is going to unravel. What, what do you recommend to those of us who are interested in just keeping up? Uh, our friends are going to be asking us, our non-medical friends are going to be asking us, how should we keep up with the epidemiology over the next couple of weeks? So I think the WHO and CDC will do a lot of, to, to really nail down what's going on. Some of the science magazines, science websites uh, like Stat News are going to probably be really following this. Uh, there's going to be, be prepared for a lot of sensationalism in the mainstream media. Uh, they tend to now think infectious diseases are important and cool because of COVID-19. So they're going to view everything through the lens of COVID-19. And you can't do that because viruses are very biologically distinct. But we're already seeing a trend to thinking about monkeypox with this, applying the same concepts for COVID-19 to monkeypox. So beware of that. So I would stick to the science and CDC and WHO. And let's just reemphasize what you've said several times, <laughs> that during the incubation period, you're not at risk. So if you find out somebody has monkeypox and had no rash and you saw them a week ago and had dinner with them, 
you're really not at risk. Right. It's, it's not just the rash. Though. So if, as long as they, they felt fine, there weren't prodromal symptoms, fever, malaise, all of that. Th they can technically be contagious there, but they're obviously going to be more contagious think, when the rash is, is present. And this incubation period is so long that you have the opportunity, even if you were a contact, to abort the infection by getting smallpox vaccination. Thank you so much. This has been really helpful. Thank you for writing this article, which I know that you wrote in a very short amount of time. Couldn't tell because it's written so well. So, so congratulations and thank you for sharing this information with all of our listeners. And thank you for having me. Hopefully this is useful to all the listeners. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This interesting discussion of the latest outbreak of monkeypox is important for several reasons. The first is that this outbreak is the first outbreak that we're aware of that has human-to-human -human transmission. Here's the good news. The incubation period is approximately 12 days. So if we can identify someone who's been exposed to monkeypox, we can give them smallpox vaccination in those 12 days, uh, which will prevent them from developing the clinical syndrome of monkeypox. The incubation period lasts for about 12 days, is then followed by uh, a fever and flu-like symptoms and a classic rash that is uniform and looks much like the smallpox rash. The way we'll control uh, these outbreaks is to focus on index cases and vaccinate uh, their contacts. Currently, the epidemiology suggests that this seems to be much more common in men who have sex with men, although anyone who has close contact with someone who has monkeypox is at risk. The epidemiology information may change over time, so this podcast gives us information as of May 23rd. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.